A gracious good afternoon. This is Miss Tomlin of the telephone company. Do I have the party to whom I am speaking? TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer, TGIF, everybody. Hope the weekend is off to a good start. Maybe we can help you in that regard. I'm Gary Mounds. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour, ably assisted today by tall guy Nathan Miller. Nathan, how are you today? Hey, good morning, Gary and Suzanne. And a little bit of a surprise to see you on a Friday and a Saturday this time. But hey, it is what it is. And Really help us to get that weekend jump started because we're looking outside and seeing a bunch of smoke and the air quality is starting to go bad and downhill. So, yeah, we could use that good jump start. Get that out of here. Is it starting to look to you like heat dome (laughs) 2? This time it's personal. Honestly, a little bit of a combination of that smoke we had last year and the heat dome because we are jumping up in temperatures to the mid to upper 90s thankfully not 115 but man with that smoke it might as well just be like a really hot day and miserable well we're going to try to make the misery abate and we're going to do it the best way we know how with laughter we're talking today about some great comedy a tradition of american and some british influenced comedy that is subversive in nature this is humor that has a sharp edge to it and a political angle it has helped change mores in society shift attitudes and maybe achieve political outcomes that's some heavy stuff it's a lot to ask of a stand-up comic or a comedic star of movies or in television when Suzanne and I decided to do this theme we figured there's no one on the planet we would rather talk to than the go-to Hollywood guy himself Jeffrey Mark for the second time Jeffrey Mark has been called a walking encyclopedia of show business history Honestly, you can't stump the guy. A singer, stand-up comedian in nightclubs and cabarets, and an off-Broadway veteran, Jeffrey has hosted radio series, written comedy, and now writes and produces documentaries and reality shows for cable television. Jeffrey has also written three best-selling books devoted to Lucille Ball, Ella Fitzgerald, and Ethel Merman. And we are very pleased to bring him back for the second time to talk about comedy today. Welcome to Manson Mitchell, Jeffrey Mark. Well, good morning and good afternoon to everybody who's listening. I had the greatest compliment yesterday. Somebody called me a national treasure. How do do you get called a national treasure and then go to the bathroom? I mean, it just... (laughs) Yes, well, already with the comedy, see? Yeah, yeah, we knew we had the right guy here. And from our perspective, our listeners can't see you. We can, and you're looking good, Jeffrey. That's great. Uh, we are so delighted to have you with us as we tackle. Interesting, it's ironic in a way because it's a heavy topic because of the nature of humor. It can be slapstick. It can be a lot. Of, it can be heavily sexual. But humor can also and often has been political. It's spoken to the politics of the day, social mores, and people's attitudes about what it is to be in this human experience together. Let's start at the beginning, and we'll work our way forward as quickly as we can, Gary. We've got an hour, and we're going to use it well. Good idea, Suzanne. Jeffrey, when I was researching this topic, 
I thought, well, I can go one of two ways. One would start in 1940 in terms of internationally significant comedy. Imagine that way back then. But then I thought 1940, in a sense, is a bit late because it would, it, I'm talking about Charlie Chaplin and his groundbreaking film, still a magnificent classic called The Great Dictator. But then I, and we will get to that, Jeffrey, for sure. But even before that, wait a second, wait a second. Who are those zany guys? They're from vaudeville. Why, it's the Marx Brothers, the rollicking, ad-libbing Marx Brothers who decided they were going to have their say about fascism, about the dangers of it, but looked at through a comic lens in the movie that Jeffrey will discuss with this right now called Duck Soup. Which Groucho always called the war movie. Oh, and he called it that because, was it done during the war or after? No, but it was about the ridiculousness of war. Wow. Duck Soup was, I think, the best film they ever made. And it's hysterical. But but Duck Soup is like what so much of the Marx Brothers films and using the term subversive, it's satire. It's looking at what's going on in the world and taking a giant pole and poking fun at it. And that's what Duck Soup did. Duck Soup was poking fun at what they already saw was happening in Europe before the war actually happened. They saw, oh, this, this black cloud is hanging over Europe. These events are happening. And then, of course, the brothers were Jewish, and they saw the huge anti-Jewish push happening in, in Europe and Eastern Europe. So the satire was, this isn't happening here yet, but dot, dot, dot. I think that some of the best humor that's made is looking at what's happening and saying, yeah, uh, taking two fingers and poking them in the eye like the three stooges. <laughs> <laughs> and with lots of songs involved too, they, these comedic romps within the film, Jeffrey, I learned to stop calling Chico Chico when I saw duck soup, because as Chico, the, the player, he became in the film Chicolini. I'm sure that film must have done a great box office in Italy. <laughs> well, you know, been the name, it, it, it was because he chased the chicks. So he was Chico. That's, that's where the name comes from. It has nothing to do with baby chickens or a yes, cheek in your face or anything else. And, and uh, to say he kept it real would be an understatement because he had a rather forward presentation of self when he approached the fair sex and made his intentions known. In real life... It was the same way. Uh, the brothers admired his ability to, um, well, this, this, this is so anti-woman, to close the deal, shall we say. He, he <laughs> among the brothers, uh, knew how to find uh, females and make things happen. Uh, there's something about his charm, his way, uh, and perhaps his humor. That that lowered people's barriers and and uh, they became very open to him. His forthrightness, and if he sat down to play the piano, you would be mesmerized anyway. That was a gimmick they came up with in vaudeville. The way he played, uh, using using his thumb and forefinger to shoot the keys, and it's 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 so charming. All of it is charming. See, that that's the other end that we're talking about subversive comedy. Sometimes it's so charming that you don't even realize it's subversive. And sometimes it's so in your face, it's almost not funny. And speaking of duck soup now, 
how was it received? I mean, in Italy, I made a joke. Uh, it wasn't allowed to be shown in Italy, from what I understand, because Mussolini took offense. So that wasn't going to happen. But what about in America? What about among the eventual allied countries? Did they see through to what the Marx brothers were trying to communicate? Not really. Not at the time. A lot of things that we think are classic comedy that we go, oh, well, that's just such brilliance. Yeah. Uh, 50 or 60 or 70 years later, we look back at it and recognize it for what it really is. In the moment, sometimes audiences don't appreciate what they're looking at. Uh, Duck Soup was the ending the near of the end of uh, the Paramount films of the Marx Brothers before they moved to MGM. And uh, no, it, it did not do well in the moment. In the moment, it pretty much said we need a new place. But looking backwards now, everybody agrees how brilliant the film is, how funny it is, and how subversive it is. I think a lot of things are like that, Jeffrey. We'll watch something that um, maybe was 20, 30 years ago, maybe 40 years ago, and we have a different kind of appreciation given the time frame between the initial film coming out and today, and then we go, oh, God, wasn't that smart? You know, wasn't that brilliant? You, it, at the time, I think a lot of the films are made mostly just for the entertainment. You and know, of they, course, we're, we're, we're limiting this to film. Comedy right. is stand-up comedy. Comedy is Broadway and vaudeville and burlesque. Comedy is radio. Comedy is concerts. It's, it's not just films. And quite often, um, people are only admired after the fact. Mm -hmm. Yes. Or the, the, uh, the, the converse is true. What seems to be hysterically funny at the moment does not age very well. Um, mm, yeah. There's no one listening to our voices who is not a fan of I Love Lucy. And the show is brilliant. And I've written a lot about it and continue to. The new Lucy book comes out next year. Mm. But there are two or three episodes where Ricky spanks Lucy on camera. Funny then. A little creepy now. Ah. Times change. Yeah. And sometimes references change. I Love Lucy and the Dick Van Dyke Show. I'll give you two examples. They tried very hard in their writing not to be topical because they wanted these shows to be rerun. They wanted the shows to be seen forever. And if you, all of your humor, humor is about what's happening right this second, well, next year it's not funny anymore. Uh, which is perhaps why I Love Lucy and the Dick Van Dyke show do age so well. But uh, in both of them, there is some misogyny vis-a-vis -vis men and women that seemed very topical at the moment. And today it's like, are you kidding me? So yeah. that, that also affects comedy, that, that, that laughter plus time. Sometimes the laughter gets larger and sometimes the laughter goes away. I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely right. Sometimes things do get funny over time and sometimes not so funny. Or the person. Uh, we all thought Bill Cosby was hysterical. We're not pretty much not laughing at him anymore. Even my own humor. Uh, jokes that I wrote for myself for New York doing stand-up comedy when I was a very young man or even when I was a teenager. I can't talk about uh, the newness of sex. I can't talk about the first time I used a condom, it's not funny anymore because I'm not 17 or 18 years old anymore. It doesn't fit me. 
the jokes yeah. I wrote for myself back then. And looking at all of this now, where do I go with all this wonderful information you've given us? There's so many directions. There's a fork in the road. I think I'll take it. All and that, right. That's the comedy of Yogi Berra. <laughs> in terms of politics, I'll bet you, Jeffrey, you would know, most people don't know because they appreciate Lucy for her genius, for her beauty, and even her wackiness. But I read a, an autobiography by the late, great Orson Bean, in which he indicated that most people don't know how deftly Desi Arnaz had to speak to members of Congress to get Lucy off the hook in the era of blacklisting. That was the hottest political potato you could hold. It, it is an amazing story. I, I believe it is the germ of the new film being made about, about the Arnazes by Aaron Sorkin. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a simple story, but it's a tragedy that happily, uh, it's like a, a comedy cartoon where someone yells very loudly and an avalanche starts to happen. And somehow or other, they countermand it and the avalanche goes backwards and goes back where it was and nobody gets hurt. Lucille Ball in 1937 had uh, signed that the party to which she was gonna be voting was communist. Uh, she did it to please her grandfather because he was really the only father she knew. She loved him. The whole family did it. They didn't vote communist. They just registered that way because that's what he asked them to do. And then nobody thought much about it. Lucille Ball, as far as I know, was not a politically active person. I think she, she uh, was supportive of whoever happened to be in power at that any given moment. She knew every president, starting with Roosevelt. And I don't think she really was a political human being. She didn't care. She, she cared about her work. That's what was important to her. Well, fade in, fade out. And the communist witch hunts start in the late 40s and into the 50s. And one of the investigations showed that they found her name on a registration list. And she testified privately behind closed doors, told the story, and she was exonerated. Except Walter Rinchel got heard, heard of this story. He got wind of it. Got heard is not really a phrase, but it came out of my mouth and I will privately laugh at it. He heard about this, he got wind of it, and then he put it into his column. And all of a sudden, all hell broke loose because you have CBS, which has already had a huge scandal because of the Goldbergs, going all the way back to 1950, where the man who was playing uh, Molly's husband was fired because he appeared in Red Channels, the book that supposedly gave the names of real communists. And this man uh, committed suicide over it because he could not get work. So CBS <laughs> already had a black eye over how they handled the communist thing. Then you have Philip Morris Cigarettes, which is a sponsor of I Love Lucy, they're freaking out. And then you know, Desi Arnaz lived through a coup in his own homeland where his entire family lost everything they owned because of politics and had a 
come to this country with nothing and rebuild his life. It was a very, very, very difficult, tragic, horrific week for the Arnezes. And in the end, it was Winchell himself who exonerated them in publicly, like, oh, this was much ado about nothing. Well, Mr. Winchell, if you hadn't opened your big mouth, there wouldn't have been anything to do about anything. So he used this to feather his own cap, to get his own publicity out there, to make himself look important. And the Arnezes almost lost everything. Mm. And in the end, uh, the press apologized to the Arnezes. I believe that's the only time that anybody who had been accused of being a communist was treated so well by the press that they weren't dragged through the mud because there was nothing there and because of the enormous popularity of the Arneses as people and the show at that moment in time. Beautifully stated, Jeffrey. My own opinion about it is the American public was not mentally predisposed to think of of Lucy stomping the grapes and trying hectically to keep up with a conveyor belt in, an, in a chocolate plant. There, all of these comic instances that are classics still with us today. Nobody was willing to look at her and see a commie. It just it would have been cognitive dissonance in a way. Yes, yes and no. I mean, the, first of all, because we have lots of Lucy fans listening and they're going to yell at me if I don't correct you, grape stomping hadn't happened yet. <laughs> the uh, chocolate factory had already happened. This came about just as they were starting to film their first episode for the third season, meaning the previous season of I Love Lucy, Lucy'd had the baby. Lucille Ball having the baby the same day Lucy Ricardo had the baby was headlines coast to coast. Uh, President Eisenhower said that uh, the news of their birth, of, of the birth of Desi Jr. and little Ricky, uh, threw him off of the headlines because he'd just been inaugurated president. But the story wasn't about him being inaugurated. It was about these people. So th- that had happened, and they had just filmed the long, long trailer. It had not been released yet. So that was the other thing. So now they have MGM involved in this, too, because if they lose face with the public, that movie goes down the toilet. So at that moment was probably the height of Lucille Ball's popularity in the world. Uh, The story of the baby, the episodes of I Love Lucy, and all that had happened around that had made Lucille Ball probably at that moment in time, the most publicized human being in the world. Wow. So that's what was happening, which is why Mr. Winchell did this. He took advantage of, ooh, these are the hottest people in the world. Let me throw some dirt at them to make me look good. And then I can take it back and kiss and make up. That's about what happened. So that's what's going on by the time we get to the early 50s, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. This this, This is 1953. 1953. So in the 30s, you've got the Marx brothers fighting fascism in their way with dark clouds looming over Europe. And then you have the Lucy affair, to call it that. In between, there is the genius of Charles Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin, starting out as the little tramp, 
becoming world famous worldwide in that role. But come 1940, and keeping in mind that historians mark the first day of World War II officially as September 1, 1939, Europe is already in or fully involved with a, a spreading deadly conflict, Nazism on the rise, uh, Hitler in his full flowering as the Fuhrer. And here comes someone, Charles Chaplin, maybe he alone could have done it, in 1940 with a film that I believe was his most commercially successful film, if I have that detail right. But nevertheless, he films The Great Dictator. And in that, he makes Adolf Hitler, with the, in, it's pretty much plain that we're talking about Hitler, just look at his appearance in the film, but he attacks Nazism with a kind of comic ferocity, lampooning it even while being unaware, I subsequently found out, Jeffrey, that Charles Chaplin said he wouldn't have made the film if he had known the extent of the horrors in the concentration camp system. When he filmed The Great Dictator, he was unaware of that. But what a hit it became internationally. And it put Adolf Hitler on this really kind of in the stocks, as it were, and subject to ridicule, I suppose, in hopes of showing the, the folly and the, the deadly fallacies of fascism. Well, let, let's take one step back. You're, you're, everything you're saying is absolutely true. Uh, nobody knew the horrors yet. First of all, the, the worst parts of the concentration camps had not yet happened. They were starting to happen. Uh, if one person was killed, it was one person too many. But the six million had just, and, and that's just six million Jews. And there's Catholics killed and gay people killed. And uh, you know, there's other kinds of things happening. But the step back is, and let's keep this to American humor. You go through the years, there was a kind of humor at the turn of the 20th century. World War I and the last pandemic changed that. And it changed comedy. Because you know, how, how does one laugh at a war? How does one laugh at millions of people dying from a bug? Then we had the Roaring Twenties, a different kind of humor. Very much like the 70s. It was like, you know what? We've come through an awful time. The hell with it. Let's party. And you have a decade of people partying. And the humor reflects that. We have a depression. Depression by itself leads to subversive humor because people are wondering why can't we fix this? And maybe our way of life doesn't work. And maybe we have trouble in the government or maybe we have trouble with rich people. And then the war changed everything again. And our focus changes. One of the reasons for the Lucy thing we we're just talking about and the communist witch hunt is we won the war. Now our focus in this country was about being pure and white, which tragically is what we were fighting against. We were fighting against that kind of, you must step in line and be like everybody else. We won the war and now we must be like everybody else. Your brain explodes at the, the convoluted logic of that. So yeah, Charlie Chaplin had the guts and the nerve and the personal motivation because Charlie Chaplin's brother was Jewish and he loved his brother very, very much. So Sidney was Jewish. Charlie was not because they had, they had different mothers and uh, or different fathers. I forget which one, but one was brought up Christian. One was brought up Jewish. 
and he loved his brother and supported his brother. So he had skin in the game of what was happening to Jewish people in Eastern Europe. And he was a genius who made this genius film playing a dual role. And uh, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful film that was both greatly appreciated at its time. And even then right-wing people were shouting, he's a communist because he made that film. Uh, communism in this country was not a big deal until the war. Uh, supposedly, Russia was our ally, but the moment World War II was over, communism became uh, the butt of jokes. Many comedians got on the communist bandwagon, meaning putting it down and making jokes about it, and people they thought were uh, that whole left versus right thing has always been American humor, because whether we think we're at the worst part of it right now, or the worst part was in the 50s. We've always been divisive in this country. We've always been divided. Our humor reflects that. One of the great freedoms of this country is you can be anything you want. So you can be radically right-wing and radically left-wing, and it's your freedom to do that. But then it's also the freedom of the comedian to lampoon it and satire it and make fun of it. This is a great place to take our break. And then we're going to move into another decade when we come back. I'm telling you, we're going to reassemble after recess. This is just such great stuff. Jeffrey Mark is with us. The go-to Hollywood guy, I like to call him. That's my personal moniker for the man. Give us a couple of minutes when we come back. There's so much more and so many others to discuss who have shaped American humor, American mores, and even American politics. It's quite a subject. I am glad that you were available to do this with us today, Jeffrey Mark. My pleasure. This is Manson Mitchell. You are tuned in to Seattle's home of alternative talk, AM 1150. We will be right back. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please, get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. 
On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Jeffrey Mark, go-to expert on classic movies and TV. He talks about the era of subversive comedy, including some very familiar names of the 60s and 70s. On Saturday, Josie Varga returns with more stories about the transition from one dimension to another and the communications between those dimensions. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. No other station delivers this much variety. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Jeffrey Mark. Jeffrey, I'm I'm curious if your books are still available and in print and, you know, can we get them at normal places where we get books? And Oh, good. You may get to have a commercial. Uh, (laughs) You're it. You're it. You're the commercial. Well, Mrs. Ricardo. Uh, yes, the books are still available. Um, Ethel Merman, the Ethel, Ethel Merman book is not in print, but you can find it online in lots of places. Uh, the Lucy book is out of print at the moment, but the new Lucy book, which is coming out late next summer, uh, is not only the television stuff I've already written about, but it is the films and the radio shows and a brand new uh, forward by Fran Drescher and new interviews with Carol Burnett and Rich Little and Anne Margaret. So that'll come out next summer. The Ella Fitzgerald book is still available anywhere you want to get it. And uh, those of you who just love me, uh, want an autographed copy, you can contact me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or through Manson Mitchell, and we can get you a copy directly from me autographed. Thank you for asking. Great. And I and, also, and, and, but yeah. wait, there's more. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the podcast, Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella, is available on seven or eight different platforms. It just debuted yesterday. Oh. Uh, it's me playing Ella's music and talking about what happened backstage and insider stories. The very first episode is Ella and Cole Porter. It is available now. I hope you give a listen. Oh, that sounds really great. And what I was going to duck in there was to make sure people spell your name right, because you are Jeffrey of the G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y. And so I want to make sure people find Jeffrey at G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y. And then, and then they misspell Mark. So it's M-A-R-K. M-A-R-K. Not Mark's like Mark's brothers. M-A-R-K like Mark. This, also, this, has, to, this has to do with comedy. L- l- allow me to talk yeah, about comedy please. for one second. Please. The very, very, very first time I headlined in a nightclub was a club called the Duplex in New York City in Greenwich Village. The Duplex, and the man mentioned this in, in his inter, in, in introducing me, had introduced, like big time introduced, Joan Rivers, Lily Tomlin, Joanne Worley, uh, Bill Cosby, Woody Allen, Dick Cabot had all gotten their start at this place. And uh, they said they were kind of fond of me. They'd see me work and they wanted me to be the headliner, which meant I was on for an hour, an hour and a half. And this guy goes on, I forget who owned the club back then, for like a five minute introduction on how wonderful I am. And now here he is, Godfrey Merck. Now I kind of Uh-oh. just shook. I kind of just shook my head and let the laugh go. Today I would have done ten minutes about it, but back then I didn't have the. I, I had you know what I pre- was prepared to say, yeah. but these days I, I've thrown that away and done ten minutes about that. But that that's oh, that that funny. auspicious start uh, in comedy clubs in New York City. That that's how I got started doing that. 
Be before we move on to our questions, um, I wanted to ask you one thing about Ethel Merman. Sure. I always liked Ethel Merman. Me too. And, and I read somewhere that she was advised not to get singing lessons because she was such a natural. Did, have, what, what did you yeah. hear about that? George Gershwin. Uh, opening night of Girl Crazy. It's just, this is November of 1930. Uh, Merman had been doing nightclub work and vaudeville work. She had been seen at the Brooklyn Paramount Theater by Ginger Rogers' mother, Layla, mm. who considered herself to be quite a talent scout. And uh, it was Layla who, who brought Miss Merman to the attention of Vitton Friedley, the producer, and George and Ira Gershwin, who were writing the score. And uh, there's a long story about how they met. And, and Merman used to love to brag about how Mr. Gershwin played her three songs that she wound up singing in this show. And he said, Miss Merman, if there's anything about these songs you don't like, I'd be most happy to change them. And it's like George Gershwin saying that to anybody is a huge compliment. But yeah. opening night uh, during intermission, and Merman was dressing like three stories up because she wasn't the star of the show. Ginger Rogers was. But she'd stopped the show twice with, with Sam and Delilah and I Got Rhythm. And right after I Got Rhythm came the intermission and Gershwin ran up the steps and walked in and said, Ethel, don't change anything and don't ever go near a voice teacher. Whatever it is you do, it is natural to you and they, they will teach it out of you. So just do what you do best and don't worry about it. I love that. So you confirmed what I heard. I just, I just love that. And I used to love hearing her in different musicals and she was the best. Oh God. What a voice. What a voice. Oh, yes. Big voice for sure. And a big right wing person politically who did not appreciate subversive humor at all. Ah, Dirty okay. humor. Yes. <laughs> Make jokes about sex, use four-letter words. Merman was in stitches. Talk about the Republicans or conservatives in a bad way. She wouldn't even like what we've said today about Republicans and right-wing and communism. Nope, she was all for it. Mm. All right. That's something I'm going to have to look into. Absolutely. And so she was a conservative at about the time, a uh, somewhat younger, I suppose, Shirley Temple, later Shirley Temple Black, was also solidly Republican. Look, we, we think of Hollywood show business as being this bastion of liberalism. No, there, were, there was always a large portion of the, of the business that wasn't. Ethel Merman, I'm, I'm mentioning people who openly Republican and claim to be right wing. Ruta Lee, Rich Little, Joan Crawford, um, Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne. This is a large group of Loretta Young and Southern, some of whom were very nice people, some of whom weren't, some of whom believed in the Republican idea of capitalism, that we need to feed that, but would never have agreed with uh, putting down people of color or putting down people who were gay or uh, forgetting the poor people. They were some of these people, more what I call Eisenhower Republicans, middle yes. of the road, yeah. middle of the road. And right. some of them were right wing nut jobs. And I'm and folks, if you think I'm putting down only Republicans, 
right wing, left wing, when you go to the extreme, when you hit the wall, when you go all the way extremist, you're a nut job. Either way, you're a nut job because you're not thinking about what's best for all the people. You're not taking into consideration that other people might have some good ideas too. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you, when you stick to this is what I believe in and up yours, uh, that's where I, I just can't get on board with you. So a lot of these Republicans we're talking about were very nice folks who believed in certain things and certain kinds of ideals. Uh, they, they were not big supporters of the New Deal of, of, of Roosevelt, but they would never have openly chastised him or called him names or anything like that. Okay. No, no. Um, Suzanne, let me set this up. I'll, I'll toss you this softball. You hit it out of the park. And Jeffrey Mark may be interested to know, and our listeners as well, this is a unique experience that we had, though it wasn't the only time that we would encounter the man. Suzanne and I went to breakfast here locally where we reside in Sarasota, Florida. And in this nice little restaurant, we're enjoying our breakfast when who comes walking past us but Dick Smothers who is a resident of Sarasota there. And we said, Hey, Dick, how are you doing? We had met the man before. There's actually a family connection. He was friends with my mother from back in Las Vegas days. And so I said, Dick, it's good to see you. You're looking good there. And he talked about an accident that changed his health routine because he could have been killed in this car accident. I believe he was on a bicycle, as I recall. Anyway, we wished him well, said it was great to see him again. He goes, well, I'm just trying to stay alive. And then he broke into an impromptu song and dance, singing (laughs) Dead Skunk in the Middle of the Road in front of our table at this restaurant. Now, that's a story (laughs) I love to tell. That happened to us, and we were thrilled, and he was funny, and he was so engaging, friendly. That's Dick Smothers. I can go to the supermarket today, and it did happen before. It was, it's been maybe four or five years ago now. Go get a, a carton of milk or some creamer for your coffee, and he's right there at the cold case. Dick, how you doing? Good to see you again. And people going back and forth in the supermarket who do not know how significant Dick Smothers and his brother Tom, Tommy, were to the American conversation in the protest era, particularly with regard to Vietnam and race. And here he is, another guy shopping at the store. It's a great story. And you are personally connected with so many of these people as well. These are significant people. And there comes a point in their life where they go to the supermarket and, and half the people don't even recognize them. Well, I've been a lucky, lucky, lucky son of a gun. I'm just old enough that I got to know a lot of people who have left us. Uh, I'm just successful enough that I was a member of the Beverly Hills Friars Club and still a member of a group called Yarmy's Army. Yarmy's Army is a group of men. They built the group around Dick Yarmy. Dick Yarmy was the stand-up comedian brother of Don Adams. Yarmy was the family real last name. And Dick got cancer. And his brothers in comedy, so to speak, took him out to lunch once a week to cheer him up. And the doctors gave him like three months to live. And he lived way over a year. And he claimed that it was those lunches that kept him going. When he died, the guys decided in his name and his honor, they'd keep meeting once a month. And they would perform as a group and take the money and help other comedians who had once been popular but fell on hard times. 
and uh, I've been blessed to be a part of this group way over 20 years now. So I have personally gotten to know Jonathan Winters and Shelley Berman and Don Knotts and Howard Morris and any number of wonderful, incredible Pat Harrington comedians, uh, Lily Tomlin, who was not part of the group, Phyllis Diller, who was, Joan Rivers. Uh, I'm lucky. I'm lucky to have known these people, dine with them, and hear what they have to say about comedy. I mean, this is not an unusual topic for me. We have spoken as a group about subversive comedy because so many of the people in the group considered themselves to be subversive comedians. And then, of course, the comedians start arguing among themselves. No, you weren't subversive. I was subversive. You were because comedians have large egos. I guess Jeffrey Mark included, but uh, I'm happy to talk about any of my friends. So throw some names at me. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm going to turn this over to you, Suzanne. What an opportunity here. In Howard the 1960s. Morris kind of caught my ear because I thought he was the absolute funniest person on Andy Griffith, if I've got the same right, yes. Howard Morris. Yes, yes. It's me. It's me. It's Ernest Tate. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And I still say that. I have a, a girlfriend that I talk to uh, regularly, and we will throw that out there um, as she's driving to work. We will do. It's me. It's me. It's Ernest T. So, I, I mean, I just, I just love that. The funniest thing Howie ever said in my company and I later repeated it when I spoke at his funeral. I was sitting in his bedroom and he was, he was quite ill by this point. But I was there, you know, several times a week. And he's in bed and I'm in a chair in his bedroom. We're just talking about stuff. And uh, because this is not television, there are times in my life where I am in great shape. And there are times in my life where I'm battling weight. And I happen to be battling weight at that moment. And just out of nowhere, and, and he was not at his best. He was weak, but just out of nowhere, like a light switch went on with him. And he says, Jeffrey, I have to ask you something. Now, this is, this is from the bottom of my heart, really and truly. You're fat. <laughs> oh, God. Wow. And being the brilliant comedian he was, he let me laugh. And he let, waited for the laugh to die down and he took it back. No, no I, I don't mean to hurt your feelings. It, you know, I, I'm just playing with you. I just, you know, because I care about you so much. I, I really wanted to know you're really fat. And he kept it going. And I thought we were done. And he went, you're really fat. How do you get laid? And I told that story at Howie's funeral and uh, it got such an enormous laugh. Maybe the biggest laugh I've ever gotten on stage that Gary Owens, wonderful Gary Owens, my friend got out of the audience and came up to the stage and shook my hand in his voice. Well done, young man. <laughs> oh, Boy, Gary Owens, I mean, talk about your subversive. That was an entire show that was subversive. We're Thank talking you. about we're talking about Rowan and Martin's laughing. Laughing. Unlike yes. anything I have ever seen on television, and with a pace that I think it's fair to say was breathtaking. And if you don't think that, ask the writers. 
Dick Martin and I were very, very close friends. And uh, there's always a story. You know, he and Dan were not close friends. Dick couldn't stand Dan Rowan. Uh, they were miles and miles and miles apart politically. Uh, Dan was a conservative. Dick was a liberal. And Dick just didn't like Dan as a person. But they were very successful as a comedy team. And sometimes money talks. And the third, the third wheel here is George Schlatter, who was the producer. And they figured out a way to use uh, almost British-style humor. And it, it's, it's dry, it's political, it stings, and you move immediately on to something else. So Laugh-In made huge fun of the war in Vietnam, political unrest, women's liberation, the gay liberation movement. Anything that was political was fodder. I think Laugh-In and the, and, and the Smothers Brothers show, those two really reflected in a way that nothing else on television did the subversiveness of how comedy was changing in this country, how unhappy we were as a country, perhaps at that moment in time, how ill we were as a country and poked fun at it in a way that made you laugh till you fell off the chair, but also made you think, which I think is at the bottom of subversive humor. Subversive humor in itself is not just, oh, there's something there. Let me give it a black eye, but let me make you laugh. And then while I'm making you laugh, let me make you think about what we're talking about here. And maybe I can change your mind or maybe I can open your eyes to something. Uh, Gary and I were talking just about that this morning when we were thinking about our interview with today, how comedy actually challenges our thinking. First, you get caught by surprise. When you, when you hear the, the, uh, the comic ending, it, it's like you laugh, you're surprised, it's funny. And then it does make you think about things. And the comedians are hugely important for moving the culture forward. Yes. It, moving the culture forward. And this is where I, and I can see, you know, we need to do another hour on this sometime. If, is there, let me just ask you and your take on this, Jeffrey Mark, is there a through line politically and sociologically in the humor of a genius like Lenny Bruce, very much in society's face, a through line from his work to the work of a George Carlin? Well, there has to be because they come about at the same time. Show business is a very strange business in that if you're a, especially a singer or a comedian, you have to be influenced by everybody who came before you and you have to be influenced by everybody around you in that moment. So to, to, to draw strings to what we were talking about earlier, everybody who's ever been on Broadway in a musical takes from Ethel Mervyn. She was the best. She influenced them. But everybody who's on Broadway now is also being influenced by each other. And thank God Broadway is opening up again. The same thing in comedy. Uh, George Carlin, Lenny Bruce, Shelley Berman, the ones who were called sick comedians, being Bill Cosby, uh, all came around at the same time. Dick Cavett. The same way Johnny Carson was influenced by Red Skelton and Jack Benny and George Burns. So, of course, uh, George Carlin 
didn't have the baggage that Lenny had. Lenny, unfortunately, went from subversive comedian who was very, very funny, who said things out loud for the first time that nobody else said. How we look at words, how we look at dirty words, how we look at sex, how we look at racism. And it was funny and it was different and it was challenging to the audiences. But when the government began to target him because of his drug use and he got involved in lawsuits and there, there is this just diminishing spiral down of Lenny's ability to actually be funny because to be subversively funny, you have to be funny. He just became subversive. And his, his nightclub rants weren't funny anymore. They were just political rants. Well, who wants to pay money to see that? Where George Carlin or Bill Cosby in his prime before we knew about certain things or, or, or Mort Saul didn't have that baggage and they could just be subversively funny and poke fun at the establishment and poke fun at what had become the post-World War II norm in this country. That kind of mayonnaise we're all alike thought. That's ridiculous because we were always a country of varying and various cultures and styles and races and religions. That's what made the United States. And that somehow after World War II, no, 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 no. We're all this one thing. And we weren't. And these comedians said, yeah, no, we're not. And let me show you how we're not. Um, George had a better time of it also because George came along a few years later. So Lenny didn't have the war in Vietnam to poke fun at the way George did. Lenny didn't have the rioting of the late 60s, the Black Panther movement, uh, the unfortunate assassinations of Malcolm X and Dr. King and, and Senator Kennedy uh, to, to literally poke fun at those things and the people who thought those were good ideas. Uh, George was brilliant. George was also drug-fueled. Uh, a lot of his early career is on cocaine. Eventually, he got sober and uh, continued. He was funny. It radically died. But one fed into the other. Uh, Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers is my favorite female stand-up comedian. Well, there wouldn't have been a Joan Rivers if there had been a Phyllis Diller. Yes. Yeah. One, one, and Phyllis and I were good friends. Uh, Phyllis was an amazing woman to me that she created such a comedy character out of, I mean, out of whole cloth that nobody had really done before. Uh, Phyllis Diller and, and uh, Jack Riley took me out for my birthday one year and she walks in, Jack and I were already there and she walks in in a full length to the floor mink coat in September in Los Angeles when it's 85 out Okay. And she comes and sits down and takes off her coat and she's in pajamas. So we're sitting in a booth talking. Phyllis ordered a double martini. And in the course of my birthday dinner, Phyllis had four double wow. martinis. Yikes. And Phyllis showed no sign of inebriation when she walked in. And Phyllis showed no sign of inebriation at all during the dinner. Not a slurred word, not everything was sharp and funny as hell and crystal clear. 
and a wonderful audience for my humor and for Jack's. And then when she got up to leave and they put the, the mink coat on her, that's when you saw how drunk she was. <laughs> <laughs> and I am told in Las Vegas that Shecky Green was famous for being able to drink just about anybody under the table. Unfortunately, that, that did not do him well. Shecky's a brilliant, brilliant man. Uh, if not for the alcohol and, and emotional problems of his own, I, I think as biggest star as Shecky was, I think today we would remember him as one of the kings, not only of comedy, but he should have been on Broadway. He could sing, he could dance. Uh, just sometimes personal demons interfere. But I, won't, I don't think of Shecky as a uh, subversive comedian. See, Phyllis was, Joan Rivers was. They turned the woman's role on this planet on its ear and said, no, I'm not going to dust and, and vacuum and clean for you. Why would I want to do that when I could be out having fun or I could be out earning money? Uh, they were subversive in how they treated the role of the woman in the world. And they, were, they, they did it differently and they were brilliant at it. Joan in skewering everybody who was popular at every given moment. I mean, imagine having the courage to call Elizabeth Taylor fat. Mm and build a, a almost new career doing comedy monologues about going to a gynecologist. Nobody even said gynecologist on the stage. <laughs> yeah. In the 1960s, yeah. Jack Benny finally, because he needed the money, quite frankly, broke down and played Las Vegas. And they said to him, you know, Mr. Benny, you're competing with Buddy Hackett and comedians who were being a little naughty and uh, maybe more than naughty. And I can do this in one minute. Jack goes on stage and he says, I've been told to make my money in Vegas, you see, that I have to use dirty words. So now, you see, I'm going to use my first dirty word. Affair. And that was it. He didn't use one more dirty word, just the word affair, the most innocuous word you could possibly use about sex to have an affair with someone. The audience screamed. Yeah. Thank you, Jeffrey Mark. This was Let's a wonderful survey of subversive comedy and yeah. more. We will do this again. Thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen. Coming up next. We have the Christine Upchurch show. And a little bit later, Jeffrey Mark is going to be back with Gary Mance on American Road Trip Talk. More about comedy. That's right. The comedy as seen in the road films. Great films indeed. Thank you, Jeffrey Mark. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Have a great weekend ahead.